Welcome to A World on Fire, an All-Star Squadron podcast. I'm your host, Billy D, and alongside me is my partner in crime, Herman Lowe. How are you, buddy? I'm great, thanks, Billy Man. Another All-Star Squadron uh, episode, which we, uh, you know, are obsessing over lately. <laughs> I mean, we've loved the series for a while, but now that we have to reread everything, you know, for this for this um, show that we're doing, I'm kind of, uh, you know, liking it from all over again if you know what i mean i'm reliving my childhood so to speak <laughs> oh yeah yeah you can't go wrong with doing that man every time you read something from your childhood usually it uh, brings back you know a bit of nostalgia there sometimes it brings you know a new light on something that maybe you don't think is as cool the second time around because maybe it's a little dated but i think this one holds up pretty good yeah man also obviously there's been some you know, talk among our Twitter compatriots and um, the people who've been sending us feedback that, you know, this is a different style of writing to what we're used to nowadays. You know, Roy's very uh, verbose. He likes to describe things, you know, that don't need to be described, you know, um, and uh, he loves his dialogue. But, <clears throat> you know, you and I, we're used to reading Roy from our, you know, tenure yeah. on Into the Weird and when he did Doctor Strange and also, you know, his Avengers stuff from the 60s. Um, mm -hmm. I'm so used to him writing like that and even his Conan comics that you know I don't actually mind it I just because of the characters and the art from Buckler and from Ordway um, you know every panel even though it's filled with dialogue boxes they still give time for the art or space for the art to shine so I don't actually mm -hmm. mind it that lot uh, that much and Roy's a, a pretty good writer even though he's definitely a comic book writer he's not you know <laughs> a writer's writer if you know what I mean he's He's yeah. there to do give you lots of exposition, and you're just gonna have to accept that if you want to you know, read All Star Squadron. But you and I love it. That's why we're doing the podcast. So we're not gonna criticize Roy. Hell, I, I, you know, vilify people who criticize Roy, <laughs> even yeah. though you know there is objectively, you know, something to criticize. I, I won't have it. <laughs> I just won't listen to it. Yeah, I'm a Roy worshiper, and <clears throat> the first thing that I actually read of his that I really was like wow he's one of my favorite writers it was actually his uh, run on thor in you know in marvel oh, comics yeah. i just yeah. oh, i loved it loved mm, it loved mm, it loved mm, it mm. you know but yep we're yeah. here to talk about all-star squadron or dc comics yeah that's right so let's get back on track <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> all right listeners this time around we're discussing all-star squadron issue four and five <clears throat> i'm gonna give um the st uh, specs on everything right from the bat, Billy, so we don't have to do it again later when we do the synopsis. All-Star Squadron uh, issue four, published in December of 1981. <clears throat> and uh, the on-sale date though was actually September 24th, 1981. 60 cent cover price, 32 page count, editor Len Wein, and then of course written by Roy Thomas, art by Rich Buckler and Jerry Ordway on inks, lettered by John Constanza and colored by Carl Gafford. And then the cover was done by Buckler and inked by Dick Giordano, a great inker, inker his own right legend. So, <clears throat> Billy, you've got the synopsis for issue number four. Uh, before we do that, I'm just going to give a quick recap. The last issue, basically the All-Star Squadron defeated Perdegadon and the villains that he called out of time to confront the Justice Society. Um, and the All-Star Squadron was formed by President uh, Franklin Roosevelt FDR, and uh, we ended with, uh, after Degaton's defeat, the Justice uh, Society and the newly minted All-Star Squadron lost their memories of the Degaton battle because of 
some you know time traveling uh you know shenanigans <laughs> and then <laughs> after that they li- were on the golden gate bridge and they listened to a speech by eleanor roosevelt um of you know america basically having to band together and be strong and uh, that was courtesy of the specter giving them this uh, ethereal floating kind of tv's uh, view of eleanor delivering the speech this radio broadcast that she did um if we want to put it in the context of, of actual historical events. So Billy, um, basically this is a new story that's going to kick off in this issue. <clears throat> and this time around, Roy's going to deal with the burgeoning question of why, why don't the most powerful members of the uh, Justice Society and the All-Star Squadron just get on over there to Japan and in Germany and Italy and just take out you know the dictators uh, and the army all by themselves? And that question now is going to be answered. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So, Billy, give us a synopsis for episode for for issue four. Okay, so picking up from last issue, our heroes are heading for Hawaii and getting more acquainted with each other along the way. When they arrive, though, they are aghast at the sight of the destruction at Pearl Harbor. The remaining soldiers attack them, not realizing who they are at first. But once they get a chance to talk, the heroes decide that a few will stay at the base but the rest will take the fight to the Pacific to find and destroy the Japanese fleet that they think attacked Pearl Harbor. Meanwhile, Danette and Sir Justin make their way to the infirmary to check on her brother. They first bump into Slugger Dunn, and he gives them the bad news that Rob is in a coma. They can't find any fleet of ships once the heroes are in the air, but they decide to head to Wake Island to help the troops there who are under attack. On a small island nearby, though, we are introduced to the Dragon King. He then tells the Japanese troops there that the heroes will be ineffective because of science and magic that will be used against them. Specifically, the Holy Grail used by Tojo and the Spear of Destiny held by Adolf Hitler. The Dragon King then uses an amplification machine to force the heroes to attack each other. All right, Herman, what'd you think of this one? <clears throat> okay, this issue did have its faults, right, Billy? Um, I think Roy put too much on his plate when he started writing this issue. Too many story elements he dealt with in a single, uh, well, 32-page stretch. It's um, But, you know, uh, there are some great battles in this one. You know, basically it's the uh, All-Star Squadron versus some Japanese soldiers and then also the All-Star Squadron versus the Justice Society. <laughs> <laughs> members who are in in the the, the squadron themselves um, because as we know that uh, you know the way Roy explains it and this is kind of a bit of a I mean I'm not gonna say it's a, a, a genius level idea of Roy but this is um, adequate way in a comic book to explain why the most powerful members of the all-star squadron can't just end the war in in a in an yeah. afternoon. Uh, the Spear of Destiny wielded by Hitler, which has cropped up in DC continuity before now. And uh, yeah. I think this is the first, well, current appearance of the Holy Grail, uh, which is here presented by a chalice. Later on, it will be presented as a stone or some kind of a, a you know, a rock. <laughs> but right now it's a yeah. chalice wielded by uh, the Prime Minister of Japan, Tojo. And Hitler obviously wielding the Spear of Destiny. They are able to, with certain magical rites known only to them, create this sphere of influence across their respective um, uh, areas where, uh, you know, it basically mind controls any magical 
<clears throat> superhero and also Superman because of some, you know, a kryptonite laced incident, you know, on Earth 2 that caused him. Uh, and we know Superman's susceptible to magic in any way. Uh, he right. also falls under the sway uh, along with Green Lantern and Dr. Fate and the Spectre and Wonder Woman um, because they are magic magical based heroes and Superman has this weakness to magic. So this is where it happens. Um, and uh, that's the reason why the JSA's most powerful members and the All-Star Squadron's most powerful members can't just go and end the war. Um, so, uh, you know, this kind of allows Roy to keep it on the home front, right, Billy? And only yeah. allow the weaker members that he's really focusing on in terms of character development in the All-Star Squadron, like Johnny Quick, Liberty Bell, and um, <clears throat> Robot Man, and later on Commander Steel and the rest, they can sometimes uh, go into, you know, Axis-occupied territory on certain mm -hmm. missions. But basically, this is going to be more of a defensive kind of war fought by the All-Star Squadron. And I think, uh, you know, Roy did well. I'm not going to say he did it brilliantly. Um, I mean, one, one thing that I would have sort of liked is if they introduced a whole cast or, or uh, basically a Nazi version and a Japanese version, an Axis version of the Justice Society. You know what I mean, Billy? And I would have liked yeah. that to be the deterrent, <clears throat> you know, but that might not have been, they might not have been able to sustain that, you know, and Roy, yeah. you know, he probably didn't want to create too many new characters. He wanted to stick to just creating a few new characters and then bringing in elements from all-star co comics in the Golden Age. Um, and, and villains from that era as well. Later on, that mm -hmm. did sort of happen. You know, in the pages of Young All-Stars, we got to see, uh, a, you know, a, an evil justice society called Axis America. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, they were not nearly as powerful as the All-Star Squadron at their height. So, you know, this was the deterrent that Hitler and Tojo had, this magical barrier, these two magical barriers, the one extending over Europe and the other one extending over the Greater East Asia Prosperity Sphere, which basically includes mm. all of Japan, all of uh, Korea, all of China, all of the Philippines, all of Singapore, all of Malaysia, <laughs> basically the entire Asia, you know, so, yeah, so um, they couldn't really go there and, and affect the war directly as, uh, you know, the All-Star Squadron. But, Billy, you know, I, I enjoyed this. A couple of good set pieces. I'll let you talk first. What did you think about uh, the initial few pages where they just quickly give a recap of some of the heroes, not origins, really, but more like Superman, for instance. He reminisces of, uh, you know, on the fact that he was the only hero with powers three years ago, and suddenly all of these colorful costume characters sprang up around him. You know, yeah. which is kind of true what happened in comics. You know, Superman jump-started the whole costumed hero comic book craze. What did you think about those first few pages where they're kind of like flying towards Pearl Harbor and they're sort of lost in thought? I mean, I like it, but if there was one thing I could do without in the comic, that would be it. You know, I would have rather they just kind of were like, okay, let's head over there, and boom, they were there. Um, some of the dialogue is funny, and I like it, but... If there was one thing, you know, like I said, one section or whatever of the comic, because like I said, it's a little chaotic. There's a lot going on. Um, that would be okay for me if that wasn't in there. But I, it, you already talked about, you know, the whole spear and everything. I actually do like that a lot, you know, because like I said, what was to stop, you know, Superman from going over there and ending, you know, the war and just 
grabbing Hitler. I think I think in the Golden Age there was a comic yeah. where he actually did do that. Yeah, but, Superman uh, ends I, the war. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but I do like that there was, you know, Roy did put some thought into this and came up with, you know, a plausible idea to uh, to kind of stop that from happening. I, I do like that quite a bit. Mm, yeah, and you know, um, this issue is notable, believe, for being the first issue that featured a letter column. I think it was called All Star Comments, right? Yeah. Um, so they, you know, Roy had been hinting at, you know, wanting readers to obviously, like most comics, they have to send in their comments, and now they've finally gotten enough to include uh, some readers' feedback. Yeah. But um, you know, uh, most issues had letter sections. That means, you know, now you know we get some some more feedback from fans, and it was predominantly positive. Obviously, they might have just printed positive letters but they did print the odd criticism here and there we're not going to read the letter you know letters from fans so it'll make it a much longer show than we intend and we do want to do two issues per episode right so but still interesting Billy that this is the first one to have that all-star comment section and then also Mm -hmm. Billy I think this is also the first issue where you see an intimation of a bird uh, like a blossoming relationship between Sir Justin and Danette Riley a little bit. I mean, yeah, they, yeah, they've been through thick and thin already, you know, being captured by Wotan and by Perdegaton and escaping together and sort of saving the day. But uh, now it, we see that Sir Justin and he's reluctant to let Danette out of his sight, sort of, you know, he's almost mm-hmm. like her knight in shining armor. <laughs> <laughs> but um, there's something, and later on, of course, fans of the series will know they do, in fact, get together. They become an item. Yeah. And also, mm-hmm. it's notable that this villain, the Dragon King, who never makes a return appearance, right, Billy? This is his, his one and only <laughs> appearance in All-Star Squadron. He will later make an appearance in other comics. He also is tied to the destinies of Sir Justin and Firebrand. Well, let's just say Danette Riley <laughs> from this moment yeah. on. He's, uh-huh. he's, something will happen later on. I'm not going to spoil that yet, but he's definitely playing a role in their future. So this Dragon King, though, yeah, he's... I, I, like him. I like him quite a bit. Yeah, uh, like Roy could have done a lot more with him, but it was never realized. Yeah. I mean, he's sort of, Billy, he's sort of like a Fu Manchu um, Asian type villain, but Fu Manchu being Chinese, this is him, you know, obviously a Japanese villain, but... Yeah. Um, he has all those trademarks of he, he 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 might be a scientist, you know. He's a he's a megalomaniac megalomaniac. He's a leader of men, but you know he doesn't really care about the lives of his men. Um, highly intelligent. He doesn't seem to have any powers of his own, but he's knowledgeable about the mystic arts. Mm-hmm. And um, <clears throat> you know, so he's an enigma. Um, and this issue, in this issue at least, he works fairly well for me. So. Uh, a great villain to introduce early on, but he didn't stick around, which which is uh-huh. kind of sad, right, Billy? Because yeah, <clears throat> yeah, he could have been much more than he became. But I think the Japanese, being the main villains in these early issues, um, uh, you know, uh, in war wise, if I if I can put it like that, in a war setting, um, that's very much uh, you know focused on because after all, it was Pearl Harbor, and it is also mentioned that it, it's only the next day, right, which is December eighth. 1941 that the u.s officially declares war you know against against japan so that's why these early villains are mostly only japanese and hitler sort of is mentioned in this because he's got the spear of destiny right billy but i think it's only on december the 11th of 1941 that germany declares war on the u.s and that sort of 
breaks this uncomfortable, uh, uh, you know, uh, situation between the U.S. and Germany of, you, the, you know, they, they haven't declared war on each other yet. So the U.S. is now only focused on Japan. But then right. Germany solves that problem for them. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, Billy, um, to mention something about the Spear of Destiny, though, <clears throat> this is not the first time it's shown up in comics. I think no. uh, the first ever time it showed up in comics was in an issue of Weird War Tales. And that is Weird War Tales number 50, written by one of your favorite writers and mine, Steve Englehart. Can you mm. believe it? Now, if I recall correctly, in that issue, though, the Spear of Destiny uh, was revealed to be in Hitler's bunker uh, at the <laughs> end of the war in 1945 when he committed suicide with his wife, Eva Braun, as the Russians <laughs> were closing in on Berlin and the Americans were also from, you know, from the um, Western side, they were closing in as well. So all was lost. And then some, you know, GIs who got into or Marines who got into the bunker they were confronted by a, a seemingly uh, undefeatable or invincible opponent wielding the Spear of Destiny who had appropriated it from Hitler's bunker and escaped and he killed a couple of Marines on the way and then one Marine tracked him down to this uh, mansion and it turned out he was this German noble who wanted to wield the Spear, you know, to to again bring forth, you know, a, a third, a fourth Reich or something like that, even though he didn't yeah. really believe in Hitler's ideology. But, you know, that was a good issue. It was a really great uh, story written by Engelhardt. Didn't have much to do with this, though, but it does sort of show you that, I mean, it could still be in continuity, if you think about it, in All-Star Squadron continuity, because um, right. after all, we're now in 1941. So Hitler already had this, the Spear of Destiny now. He's mm -hmm. going to use it again in 1945 in the bunker, you know, so it, it kind of uh, fits in to the whole puzzle. But what I really wanted to mention, Billy, is have you ever read, I think it's DC special number 29, featuring the untold origin of the Justice Society. Have you ever read that comic? I have not. Okay, that one's hard to come by. I, I got it, but I didn't get it because I was an all-star you know, squadron fan. I just happened to have picked it up in a in a batch of comics. I think in the nineteen nineties. I don't know, but I read it, and basically, it explained to me something that I had read in All Star Squadron in the eighties, and that was all these flashbacks that Roy would sometimes put in the comics of All Star Squadron. We'll get to one okay. later in the run, but you know, basically, what happened was is the comic starts off, and I'm just quickly going to run through this because it's important. It it has to do with the Spear of Destiny. Uh, this DC special number 29 starts off with um, the Justice Society uh, being involved in trying to stop the invasion of Britain, the seaborne invasion of Britain called Operation Sea Lion, which was, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, created, well, it was um, concocted by Hitler's generals because they knew that eventually they would have to invade Britain, but not just by the air, which they had been doing, bombing it with the Luftwaffe. They actually had to lance, uh, launch a seaborne invasion. So that never really happened in real life. It never got off the ground because of, you know, the Luftwaffe's defeat in the Battle of Britain and because of the, you know, the British, uh, the presence of their, you know, mighty fleet, their navy that the Russian, uh, sorry, that the German U-boats never completely took out, even though they did cause, you know, massive damage to the to the British fleet. Um, so mm -hmm. Operation Sea Line was never officially launched. It wasn't as, you know... Um, they it never got to that stage, but in the comics, it's explained that Operation Sea Lion was in fact prevented 
from happening by the JSA, <laughs> specifically <laughs> by the Spectre, who basically showed up and killed thousands of German soldiers who were amassing on the coast of Normandy, on the beaches of Normandy, <laughs> wow. to, to, you know, uh, cross the channel to go and invade Britain. And the Spectre just devastated them. But before that, Batman and I think Flash and, and uh, Green Lantern, they were sent on a mission by FDR uh, to Scotland because, you know, they had to deal with some, you know, um, some uh, German spies in Scotland. And then they were captured by this, I think it was like a, a robot or something that, called a murder machine, which the Nazis had <laughs> created. And they were defeated. And then they were flown to Berlin. And then they were basically, you know, chained up uh, in a square where Hitler was ha holding a rally and he had the Spear of Destiny and he was going to execute them <laughs> with the Spear of <laughs> Destiny. So you have Batman wow. and you have, um, you know, Green Lantern and Flash tied to the stake. <laughs> and then um, what happened? Oh, okay, okay. Dr. Fate, he saw all of this in his orb you know, of Naboo. And he called the Spectre and he called lots of folks. He, in fact, even used these golden tentacles through a magical spell to just kidnap some mystery men. <laughs> to, and that's how the Justice Society eventually got together. The untold origin, you know, Dr. Fate just kidnapping them in order to help, uh, you know, with the, sea, the invasion of Britain and also with, you know, the execution of these three um, future JSAers. But Billy, yeah. what happened then was Hitler then, when the JSA showed up to save Batman and Green Lantern and the Flash, Hitler used the Spear of Destiny to call a host of Valkyries from Valhalla. <laughs> you know, because this whole Teutonic mysticism thing that Hitler had going on. He called them yeah. with the Spear of Destiny, which has got nothing to do which with... makes no sense. No, it doesn't Odin. have... I mean, Odin had a spear, but that, that was yeah. not the Spear of Destiny. Gongnir or something yeah, like that. Yeah, because the spear, called, yeah. the spear of Destiny, also known as the Spear of Long Giants, was presumably what a Roman soldier used to stab Jesus in, in his side when he was hanging on the cross, right? So after right, that, yeah. it gained mystical properties. But still... <laughs> Um, you know, so these Valkyries came and they basically kicked the crap out of these uh, future JSA members. And then they they accompanied a experimental bomber, which flew all the way from Europe. You know, and this was in 1940. This was a year before Pearl Harbor, all the way from right. Europe to the States to bomb the White House. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, the, the JSA kept trying to stymie them along the way. It's almost like a Captain America Red Skull First Avenger situation, you know, where Cap's on this bomber, yeah. he has to stop the Red Skull. And it's like they're racing for time here. And then the JSA, they don't manage to defeat the Valkyries, but they do manage to sort of uh, intercept the bomber. And just as the bomber is, uh, you know, um, taken apart, what happens is one of the Valkyries, she still she still wants to fulfill Hitler's last command and she enters the White House and tries to assassinate uh, FDR. And then the Atom, little Al Pratt, the Atom, he dives in front of her spear and then, you know, saves the president. Seemingly the Atom died, but, you know, he proved more hardy of constitution. He survived that blast, but he saved the life of the president. And then Superman showed up and he restrained the Valkyrie, but she disappeared. So, Billy, why is this important? This is the first encounter of the JSA with the Spear of Destiny. Yeah. So, you know, the Spear of Destiny is a part of JSA lore. 
you know, especially mm-hmm. then when All-Star Squadron came around. It seems that it has more powers. It can call Valkyries, yes, but it can and it can change you into an invincible combatant if you wield it. But it can also, with certain rights discovered by Hitler and Tojo, it can also uh, work in conjunction with the Holy Grail to create this uh, spear of influence of which which is now plaguing the All Star Squadron. So I just thought I'd I'd mention that because it is important. <laughs> yeah. And you'll see uh, yeah. Roy using flashbacks of, of that comic later on in the All-Star Squadron run, you know. Now, Billy, yeah. um, I think that's all we can say about this issue. They managed to to uh, negate the influence of the Spear of Destiny briefly when Hawkman, he's the hero of the issue, right? Hawkman. Mm-hmm. He yeah. manages to, he realizes they're not going to win against the likes of Green Lantern and Superman and, you know, Dr. Fate when they've become, you know, uh, Japs themselves, or should I say the Japs is a derogatory term. Uh, sorry, I mean, when they become on the side of the the axis. So Hawkman sort of leads them away from this sphere of influence. And then they regain their senses. Um, and that's basically the whole story. There's nothing else notably that happens. Um, no, so this no. is just the establishment of the reason behind why the All-Star Squadron can't invade Axis territories. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, uh, yeah, that's basically all I have to say about this issue. Still, uh, some pretty good panels. If I can, you know, Billy, Ooh. I don't know if you have some uh, ones that you want to mention first. There's some great action in here, drawn brilliant, brilliantly by the art team of Butler and Ordway. Which ones were your particular favorites? The ones that you you want to highlight? Well, definitely. I mean, that the very first splash page is awesome, but I think the one that to me. It's just it's a powerful page is the one where it says after aftermath of infamy infamy and it shows you know Pearl Harbor and the heroes heading towards Pearl Harbor and man that's a that's a, a powerful page right there I really like that one that's right man that's uh, uh, also a disturbing page because if you think about yeah. it that I mean they they landed on Oahu airfield which had been devastated by the Pearl Harbor bombing all the planes had been destroyed and lots of folks lost their lives. So, you know, yeah, very powerful, especially I think, I mean, I'm not an American, but if you're an American and you realize the the scale of, you know, that attack and that sneak attack there, it's it's very powerful. Now, it's especially disturbing for Danette Riley and Sir Justin when they meet Slugger Dunn and uh, then they're accompanied to the Mm -hmm. hospital room where Rod Riley, her brother, is laid up in a coma. And then, you know, there's a scene of her weeping over her brother. That one really got to me because of how mm-hmm. Roy wrote it and the art and yeah it was um appropriately somber right Billy powerful mm-hmm. scene oh, yeah. there as well and then you know um once we get to the more comic booky scenes right you have um <laughs> you know the JSA members well the All-Star Squadron's most powerful members being influenced by by this um uh, you know sphere of influence from the mm-hmm. Holy Grail mm-hmm. And then you have Hawkman taking on Dr. Fate. And <laughs> Hawkman gives him a full swing of the mace in yeah. his... He hits him <laughs> in his mug, in his face, but yep, nothing, face. no effect at all. And then Green Lantern turns evil and he had been transporting the the non-flying members of the All-Star Squadron. So he, rather than just dropping them to their death, he gently puts them down on this island... <laughs> For the yeah. Japanese troops to engage. And they're like <laughs> yeah. storming them and they cry, Banzai! <laughs> <laughs> and then 
we've got some awesome action from Liberty Bell and Robot Man. Basically, Robot Man, he takes out a whole squad of these guys with with help from the Atom and Liberty Bell and Dr. Midnight. But mm-hmm. Robot Man, I think he kills a guy there. I mean, he he, he hits this guy... And the guys go this this Japanese soldier, and the guy goes flying backwards. And Robot Man says, "You'll be picking chrysanthemums in the Imperial Gardens." <laughs> what does that mean? Wow! <laughs> uh, I think he's pushing up daisies. <laughs> I think so because think about it: all of these guys are raring for action. They're ready to revenge what you know what happened on Pearl Harbor. So they're not pulling any punches, <laughs> if I can pull it like yeah. that. Literally, he's not pulling his punches. And then Liberty Bell. And the, the, the All-Star Squadron members on the ground, they quickly figure out that the Japanese are going to bayonet them to death because they're being restrained by Green Lantern, right, Billy? But then they're, right. they're smart enough to figure out that Green Lantern's weakness, the Earth, Earth 2 Green Lantern's weakness is wood. It's not the color <laughs> yellow. It's wood, you know, because his yeah. lantern is a magical lantern after all. Uh, so it's right. uh, some kind of weakness. And then they throw uh, Liberty Bell. She chucks a piece of wood a log at his face and knocks him out <laughs> yeah and that's how they're able to engage the japanese troops and johnny quick they call him what a one-man commando squad <laughs> <laughs> he takes out a heap of japanese soldiers uh, super quick and then you know um uh, liberty bell shows off some karate skills you've got some more flying action between hawkman and dr fate now, Billy, my favorite scene featuring Robot Man is where he storms that bunker. Can you speak on that? Isn't that an amazing... That's a fantastic bit of action paneling there. Yeah, as he's kicking the crap out of, like you said, a whole squad of Japanese soldiers. Um, he says about having a look-see in this, uh, you know, uh, the base. And he says, there's plenty of machinery. I don't know, turned into scrap metal. And he goes, I wonder if this place has been booby-trapped. And then... <laughs> Kawoom, it blows up. And as he's flying through the air, he remarks, well, now I know. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's a brilliant bit of, uh, you know, Robot Man goodness. And, and, and then blew he, his arm off. Yeah, his, his arm's been blown off. Yeah, and then he says, oh, he just has to get back to, uh, you know, he just needs a soldering iron and it's all good. <laughs> yeah, and then, you know, a great bit of Hawkman doing some on-the-job, you know, uh, deduction there, thinking how he can, you know, if you know, save the All-Star Squadron by, you know, reversing this mind control <laughs> effect, and he does it very well, right? But he basically lures with some trash talk, right, and some insults. He lures the rest of the, um, you know, affected JSA <laughs> members and the All-Star Squadron members. He lures them, you know, outside of the Sphere's influence, which is great. And, yeah, and, um, he, and th- th- with this crazy language he's using, obviously some of the All-Star Squadron don't understand what he's trying to do at first. So the Adam remarks, Hawk, have you gone crackers? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that's cool. And there's even a couple of holy cats in there again, right, Billy? They love that oh, yeah. phrase. Have yep, you gone yep. crackers? That's a classic. <laughs> So, you know, then the, the issue ends with Hawkman, you know, not really musing on this new Axis weapon, which is the Holy Grail much. He's basically thinking about Shira Sanders, his girlfriend, or his love yeah. interest at the time, who's on a dig in the Yucatan in Mexico, right, Billy? Mm-hmm. So she's yep. an archaeologist, and he's wondering where she was. She, he, in fact, mentioned her in the previous issue as well. He um, did, yeah. That he's wondering and if she's safe, because now that war's been declared, actually Mexico... In fact, 
Germany had made some overtures to Mexico during World War One to join them against the U.S. Right. At, at that point in time, a long-standing argument with the U.S. over agrarian territory, you know, in the New Mexico mm -hmm. region and, and around the southern border, right? So there was this dispute. They, they had fought a war over that before. But, you know, at the moment, Mexico, they were the U.S.'s friends. But, you know, they did have a treaty with the U.S. too. But there mm -hmm. was no guarantee that anybody would honor treaties then because of the fact that Germany had broken already so many treaties up to that point in time, sure. you know, in yeah. the war with, with England, yeah. with, with Russia, they'd broken a lot of treaties. So, um, understandably, you know, the U.S. government were wary of Mexico, but, you know, I think Mexico then, the deal was sealed once Germany, because Mexico had been supplying America with, you know, uh, oil and with some other, you know, material and they'd also been indirectly supplying Europe, you know, the the yeah. the um, uh, allies. So Germany sank two Mexican tankers, you know, um, with their U-boats. And then that basically sealed the deal for Mexico. They entered into the allies and then they, they were on the side of the allies. But at this point in time, there was this feeling, you know, believe what I mean, that, that Mexico could possibly be an enemy of the states. So yeah. that's why we're going to shift our attentions to another front in the next issue, issue five, which is uh, Mexico um, and the Yucatan, right? So the peninsula there. So interesting that they went that route, but it's understandable, you know, because um, at that point in time, Mexico had not officially entered the war against Germany yet and against right. uh, Japan. So Billy, then since Hawkman left us with that thought at the end, wondering about Shira Sanders, we can head on into the next issue, which is issue five, Mm -hmm. Now, at the end, well, when we finish discussing this issue, we'll compare the two covers, right, Billy? Because there's some two yeah. pretty good covers. We got to talk about them, but we'll leave that for later. I'm going to head on straight into the synopsis here for issue okay. five. And this is a very short one. Lots of stuff happens, <laughs> but we'll be talking about that during the course of our discussion. All mm -hmm. right. What happens in issue five is following the bombing of Pearl Harbor, the JSA hold a meeting. And then they, this is not the All-Star Squadron, this is the JSA. They hold a meeting and they decide to disband so that their members can join the army and the fight against, mm -hmm. you know, the Axis. And this, in fact, all happened in All-Star Comics number 11. So this is where Roy now has us at this point in time, between events of All-Star Comics number 11, when the JSA in the Golden Age joined the military now we see where that takes them and where that takes the All-Star Squadron. Mm -hmm. All right, so then we cut to New York City where Johnny Quick and Robot Man prevent the destruction of the Statue of Liberty at the hands of some Nazi saboteurs. And then afterwards, they meet up with several members of the All-Star Squadron at the apartment of Danette Riley. While the squadron members hang out and socialize and get to know each other better, Danette realizes that the blast from Wotan and her subsequent fall into the lava pit has given her the power to control flame. And she almost sets her bedroom and her apartment alight right after she finds her brother, Rod Riley's old costume, his old firebrand costume. And she realizes he had in fact been a golden age superhero or a golden age mystery man, as they called them, uh, in a letter that he wrote her as well. So um, it seems that her experience on Degaton's Island 
was to the All-Star Squadron's benefit because now they automatically have a new member without any further discussion whatsoever. <laughs> and the next day, the squadron members, Liberty Bell, Robot Man, Johnny Quick, Shining Knight, and the newly minted Firebrand, along with Hawkman, the Atom, and Dr. Midnight. Wow, that's a huge cast of characters. They head off on an expedition to Mexico to accompany Hawkman in his search for his missing fiance, Shira Sanders, who is an archaeologist in the Yucatan. Shira has been captured by Nazis working with a Mayan supervillain known as the Feathered Serpent, and they plan to execute her, Mayan and Inca style. <laughs> so they're gonna human sacrifice Shira. All right, so oh, Billy, I'm gonna leave the the ending of the comment up for our discussions. I'm not gonna get too much away. That's basically what happens. Mm -hmm. um, the first part of the comic is very much set in New York City. What do you think about Johnny Quick and Robot Man teaming up to defeat those Nazi saboteurs at the Statue of Liberty? I like that quite a bit. It's fun. You know what I mean? There's like, you know, some kind of crazy dialogue and stuff like that. You know, some more holy cats and, <laughs> and yeah. They, they actually, you know, have a interact with the cops there too. It's kind of funny, but I like it. It's a good little scene. You know what I mean? It's a, it's a good... Uh, it's a good little scene, and then compared to what happens in in Mexico too, I like that scene too. I like this issue quite a bit. It's a, it's totally fun, you know. It has you know the new Firebrand, which I love too. Oh, I you love know, her. Great character. Yeah, I really like Danette a lot. So I really like this issue quite a bit. Yeah. Now the last issue we criticized because of Roy, you know, heaping too many you know um, plot directions into one you know thirty page comic. In this one, mm -hmm. I'll criticize Danette's rapid origin, <laughs> you know, like because she she doesn't even go through the phase of, oh, I should experiment because after all, it's fire based powers. I could burn down the whole city. She doesn't even go through that that phase where she has to practice and, and train and use her power. Figure she just immediately dons the costume and she adds a little bit of her own wardrobe to her brother's costume. Right, Billy? <laughs> and she becomes firebrand. And then the JSA, this is all par for the course for them because they're just like oh you've got powers okay well I have to take off to Mexico and then the JSA say we'll go with you and Firebrand even says yeah me too now that I've got superpowers too <laughs> <laughs> so that part is a little bit you know it's a little bit much but you know this being comic books you know Roy was just chugging along here I think things really sped along at a very fast pace but yeah that's the only major criticism I have but believe the beginning is also sort of characterized by uh, the, the I think there's an, a great artistic rendering of, uh, of uh, Franklin Roosevelt's speech declaring war on Japan because we're still you know now December I think this is December 8th still uh, or, or maybe the day after and you know this the yeah. speech is very much you know what everybody is talking about at that point in time because now the US has officially entered the war against Japan so they devote a yeah. whole page to that and um, I, I like that quite a bit very you know historical and when I was reading this for the first time as a kid I was definitely interested and I asked my dad like what what is this like what what did this mean and my dad says oh yeah this this is actually what happened the timeline is correct and you know what what Roy did here he didn't say Roy's name he didn't know who was writing the comic he just says yeah the guys who did this comic they did their research they know what's going on so you know I was definitely more interested in history because of this and then Billy before we talk about you know the happenings in Mexico we got to mention 
uh, we see a bit of, uh, you know, the Germans obviously trying to talk to the feathered serpent in Mexico beforehand in the first couple of pages. And then we see a flashback to a Green Lantern comic um, from the Golden Age. I think it was Green Lantern number four from 1942, where Green Lantern had intercepted and destroyed some um, uh, dive bombers and some uh, uh, planes, uh, Luftwaffe, which prevented them from attacking, uh, you know, the, the states proper. Uh, so mm-hmm. this had in fact happened in the golden age in a golden age comic because many of those early you know early 1940s superhero comics had issues where they dealt directly with german soldiers and with japanese soldiers you know even in the Fawcett universe yeah. captain marvel you know he was riding yeah. just like superman they were riding you know bombs <laughs> they were part of the war effort basically even the super yeah. uh, the superman um or a cartoon you know believe the <clears throat> from the 1940s done by the Fleischer brothers. There was a couple of those where he dealt with the Germans, right? And um, so, you know, this is Green Lantern. They they had a flashback of that. And this Nazi, this general, um, what's his name? General Saukel, right? He's the Uh guy talking to the Feathered Serpent. He laments that fact that, uh, you know... uh, Oh, okay, this is in fact, yeah, the day after... Churchill declared the war, right? Believe it's not December the 8th. This right. is probably December the 9th. The 9th, yeah. Yeah. So um, <clears throat> he laments the fact that, you know, the 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 Yankees, as they call them, have these heroes that can stop them from <laughs> yeah. directly attacking, you know, uh, America itself. The United States, yeah. Yeah. So after that, we see Shira, you know, captured in this cage and she's unconscious. And then we cut to New York with this brilliant scene of Johnny Quick and Robot Man teaming up. Now, the pol- yeah. the police let them know about these saboteurs hold up in the Statue of Liberty and that they might have a bomb. Right. And then Johnny Quick shows off his flash-like ability to run on water, mm-hmm. leaving Robot Man to, you know, commandeer this uh, boat um, to, to get over to Liberty Island. And then... Uh, they well, this is great. Johnny Quick definitely the one for the win here, right, Billy? Because oh, with, yeah. without his super speed, the the Statue of Liberty with it would have been history. <laughs> we go. Well, oh, do you want to sure. speak on this action sequence here? I mean, there's dynamite all wired up and ready to go. Oh, yeah, it's great. Like Johnny Quick just runs straight up the statue, right up to the torch where these two <laughs> Germans are, and the one says. Lieber Gott, there's a masked man charging us, Heinrich. He, and he goes, shoot him, Dummkopf, hurry. <laughs> <laughs> and Johnny Quick says, oh, no hurry about that, fellas. I've got plenty of time. And crack, just punches one guy out. <laughs> yeah. And then he, the, the, the next guy's like, it. your turn, Curly. And this guy's bald. <laughs> <laughs> Schweinhund, I will blow your head off for the greater glory of Der Führer. Johnny takes him out he grabs he defuses the bomb no he didn't doesn't defuse it he rips it off the Statue of Liberty then well no no he does defuse the initial bomb then the guy brandishes a hand grenade at him Curly Curly brandishes the hand grenade (laughs) and Johnny Quick super speed slaps it out of his hand and it detonates you know above the Statue of Liberty's head sort of destabilizing the statue a little right yeah and then it's time for Robot Man to shine what does he do, Billy? Because the arm of the Statue of Liberty is about to collapse. 
yeah, so he goes flying in there and uses his super strength to try to hold it kind of together while <laughs> Johnny Quick's still out there punching on this Nazi. <laughs> yeah, and then he does. He manages to hold the entire, well, inner structure of the arm, this this um, <laughs> webwork of girders. He manages to hold it together until Johnny Quick super mm -hmm. speed repairs everything with some cable. Yeah. And then, you know, they congratulate each other on job well done and how good of a team they make. And this is a bit that they have between them, whereas there's this running joke that Johnny Quick keeps calling Robot Man, Robbie. <laughs> and he's like, for the last freaking time, don't call me Robbie, you irritating speed freak. <laughs> oh, it's a great, great oh, sequence. Funny. And they run, you know, Robot Man can run at, what, almost 100 miles per hour. So Johnny Quick has to slow down, you know, but still they yeah. make it across New York to Manhattan to donate Raleigh's apartment mm -hmm. and uh, they, they meet the rest of the all-star squadron that I mentioned earlier which is still a huge cast and that's when Danette discovers her firebrand powers after she dons her brother's costume <laughs> which is still like I mentioned before pink and red <laughs> this pink silken shirt gossamer type uh. shirt and then she nearly burns down the apartment and Johnny Quick again uses his super speed to sort of create a cyclone to put out the flames to put the flames out. yeah yeah that's a that's a great bit too but then after that you know they just quickly go from like i say a to z without caring about the rest of the alphabet because they're immediately like let's head off to mexico to find hawkman's fiance <laughs> mm -hmm. now billy there's an interesting bit there did you see the part where danette changes her clothes Oh, when it's like in the dark there? Yeah, she's naked. Well, she's in her underwear, but initially uh, Ordway and Buckler drew her naked, you know, stylishly naked. You know, you can't you, yeah. you just, but she was naked. And then I, I don't know who, but they asked someone, DC, obviously the ed editorial department, they weren't happy with that bit. So they asked uh, <laughs> someone to sort of draw in the underwear lines because they couldn't, yeah. you know, they couldn't exactly have that I, I wonder who was doing it i think it was carl gafford you know carl gafford he, he was asked <laughs> to to draw oh, okay. the lines and i might be wrong <laughs> about that but yeah so <laughs> interesting right Great. and then you know uh i i don't know billy did you catch the reference to the ark of the covenant in this comic you oh know? no uh -uh. yeah it's, it's like um uh you know hitler Obviously, being in you know possession of the spear of destiny and uh, Tojo being in you know, possession of the Holy Grail. Apparently, in this issue, it's hinted at that Hitler is also looking for the Ark of the Covenant, which we all know from Raiders of the Lost Ark and from the Bible. <laughs> how, that, how that works out? Yeah. Yeah, but um, <laughs> we know how that works out. Yeah, Indy, that's all his his bit. Gets shunted off to a warehouse in Washington somewhere. That Ark. But, um, you know, uh, it's, it's great that I think it's the general Schalkel that mentions that, you know, that says that, you know, the feathered serpent, you know, doesn't have to worry. The Axis is powerful enough to take on the All-Star Squadron because they're protected by these two magical items. And once they get the Ark, that'll possibly increase their chances. But they never do, in fact, get a hold of the Ark. But interesting bit, right, Billy? Yeah, and, um, for sure. Yeah, other than that, you know, there's... Uh, not much else to talk about other than this fight they have with the Feathered Serpent and the Nazis in Mexico. Billy, you want to speak on that? 
Yeah, well, it's funny. They take a, an airplane to Mexico, you know, and uh, once they get there, they run into some uh, very stereotypically drawn <laughs> Mexican oh, citizens yeah. here. <laughs> That's right. And the one, so, yeah, they want. It's kind of funny. Yeah, it's funny. The one was wearing Shira's scarf. <laughs> That's how they <laughs> eventually tracked her down because she wasn't at her hotel room, which was lavish, by the way. She's staying in this posh hotel. And when they, when the, you know, the All Star Squadron members asked, because they were all in their civvies at this point in time when they arrived at the hotel, when they asked Carter about this, uh, he said, "Yeah, she likes to travel in style. Shira does. <laughs> you know, she doesn't. She's an archaeologist, but she doesn't like to stay in some two bed hotel." flea flea ridden uh-huh. hotel she likes to stay in these high class joints and um then they catch this mexican this mexican guy running through the streets <laughs> wearing her scarf and that's i mean yeah. what what a lucky break right <laughs> right so what happens then billy well it's great they catch up to him and the guy says see si, senors but who are you with your strange masks, your armor like conquistadors? And like, we're the all-star squadron from the United States, which means nothing to him. Oh, man. And when they question him about the scarf, he says he got it from a gringo lady who digs among the old ruins. Jeez. Jeez. Come on. That's pretty stereotypical portrayal of Mexicans here. Not cool, man. Not cool. Oh, yeah. I'm thinking, well, it's 1981. That's, you know, what you were going to get. I mean, now... And I mean, in the, even in the last issue, you know, Roy's trying to make this as, you know, uh, close to, you know, real as he can. But it was still tough reading some of the dialogue, you know, with some of the, like you said, you know, you mentioned how, how some of the, the the words they used for the Japanese soldiers. It was a little off-putting, you know. Mm. It's, it's it's tough. And again, it wasn't like, written in, with, to make, you know, offense to anyone or anything like that. It was to be as close as to what was probably said. You know, and be as accurate as possible, but it was a little tough reading some of these things at some points. You know, that's right. Overall, love them, but it was still tough. Well, I mean, there was a mandate at the time when dealing with war comics like you know Weird War Tales and Sergeant Rock, and um, although Sergeant Rock they didn't always fight the Japanese, they were more Germans. But you know, they had the Krauts, you know, that they called them that way, a derogatory yeah. term for the Germans. But in the All Star Squadron comics, I knew that the the mandate was that you couldn't really use the word Jap. Right, Billy, you had to use the word nip, which is just as bad as jab, you know, yeah, in my like mind at worse. least. Yeah, it could be yeah. even worse. I mean, Gosh. because they, they, they reasoned that nip is a reference to Nippon, which is, you know, the Japanese name for Japan. Well, it's actually Nihon, you know, right. Nihongo. So, you know, it's um, not much better there, guys, you know. No, <laughs> yeah, that's haven't improved pretty on. rough. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I, I try to always read these things within, like, the context of the time they were written. And then, like I said, even with, you know, Roy, you know, I'm sure he wasn't trying to be insensitive or anything like that. He was trying to think, okay, now what would they have said in 1941? And I'm sure that's what they would have said, but it, it still was tough to read in 2021 here. Yeah, that's true, man. That's true. Well, product of its time, right, Billy? So, I mean, yeah. you and I were both Lovecraft fans, and he was one of the most reprehensible <laughs> you know, yeah. racists of all time, but you, know, uh, you kind of have to look at it in context, but we don't sanction that at all. Listeners, you know us from our other shows. We hate this kind of thing, but uh, it is what it is. That's just how people wrote at the time. So, you know, we're going to read right. it in, the, in that era's context, you know, from how, how they wrote sure. it. But Roy is the nicest guy. He's not a racist. He's not a bigot, you know. No. 
He doesn't subscribe to to that at all. He's a very nice guy, you know, just like Stan Lee was, you know, um, they loved everybody. They included everybody as, you know, having human rights. So in this case, yeah. it's just, you know, he Roy writing like he thought they spoke in that point in time, which, which they probably did, you know, speak like this. Right. But oh, then, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah, we cut Billy to this action scene where they're led to this warehouse by this Mexican who was sort of paid or not paid. He was he was blackmailed into leading them to this warehouse because his um, father is being held at gunpoint by these Nazis who, who are in full Nazi regalia. I mean, these guys are right out of the Gestapo's handbook for how to dress, yeah. <laughs> you know, for... Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, they've got their little, um, you know, distinctive helmets. They've got the Nazi, you know, eagle. They've got the swastika on their arms on those little strips. The and they've got even, pistols, yeah. the Lugers, everything. And then this is the first time the All-Star Squadron takes on, you know, this a full Nazi battalion. I mean, they took on a Japanese battalion in the previous issue, which was great. And now they're owning these guys, right? Liberty Bell, she's not one for hostage situations. She immediately yeah. you know, does a, a karate kick or something to this Nazi yeah. General Schaukel's face. Kicks the guy right in the face, yeah. And Johnny Quick takes out a couple of guys and then he swings this other guy around by his armpits using this Nazi's legs to kick his friend <laughs> into unconsciousness. <laughs> Dr. Midnight Judo throws a guy. The Atom does a Spider-Man move where he does this double does kick. Split kick, yeah. Oh, split kick, man. That's amazing. <laughs> Robot Man is taking guys out left and right. He's picking this one guy up with one arm, hefting him above his head. Like Looks that. like this guy's back is broken. And then we get the first bit of action on the part of Danette Riley, where she hasn't used her powers up to this point. But then one of the Nazis, they brandish a flamethrower, right? And mm -hmm. uh, even his flamethrower costume, which is reminiscent of the costume worn by the human bomb, you know, from the Freedom Fighters. <laughs> That's true, yeah. But he's got the little Nazi armband with a swastika on this white costume. Uh -huh. of his. So we, we know he's evil, yeah. We, we definitely know he's bad, <laughs> especially by his facial expression, right? You don't even need that swastika. Wow. But he and blasts. What he says, too. Yeah, what does he say? My flamethrower will dispose of this American trash. <laughs> yeah, stand aside, <laughs> countrymen. He blasts them <laughs> with it, but it doesn't affect Robot Man. But well. A plan here. <laughs> A bit of quick thinking on the Nazi part here. Robot Man walks, runs through this wall of flame, but then one Nazi, who's probably a, a Nobel Prize winner waiting to happen, you know, after the Americans get him for Operation Paperclip or whatever, he's like saying, aim at his legs. Concentrated fire will fuse his metal heels together. And then and Robot it works. And it works. <laughs> Oh, man. But then Danette shows her power. And the first time she shows off her power is not to show that she can cast fire, which she's shown she can do in her apartment. She absorbs the flame and okay. then takes the guy out with a flying two-fisted dive. And, and punches him again right in the face. Punches the guy. And she, she <laughs> bruises her knuckles. But this guy's laid out. He's unconscious. She knocked him for a loop. Yeah, so she did. So she's definitely got some of her brother's... Uh, fisticuff talents there from the original firebrand then she shows off her worth by absorbing all the flames in the entire warehouse yeah. into herself so she's pretty safe to have around even though she has a firepower right Billy she can absorb flame controlling fires effectively and then mm -hmm. uh, they, Dr. Midnight 
congratulates her. You know, he says he can practically guarantee her membership <laughs> after this display. And then they they're they flying. They, they get what they need, the information from the Nazis. But, you know, um, meanwhile, Hawkman and Sir Justin, they've been flying with this guy who's got Shira's scarf to this uh, Aztec ruin that she's mm-hmm. been excavating and or that she's been studying. And then when they approach the pyramid, they're taken out by a burst of electrical energy. Right, mm-hmm. Billy? And then it, it's hinted at that the electrical charge was such that both men would have died if it wasn't for Sir Justin's mystical armor and Hawkman's nth metal. Nth metal, yeah, yeah. in his belt. So, you know, they recover just in time to see the feathered serpent brandishing this wavy type Thulsa Doom esque <laughs> sacrificial dagger <laughs> above the altar where Shira Sanders is now lying ready for the sacrifice and he says he's going to sacrifice her to Kukulkan or Quetzalcoatl the god of the the Incas right Billy so um, then he says when I slay this woman a few short moments from now the whole of Mexico shall call me master <laughs> and all the Nazis are just looking on one of them has his mouth agape like, yeah <laughs> mouths agape man they can't believe this and nothing's really been done that would elicit this, you know, um, reaction other than the fact that this guy's crazy. <laughs> they're probably thinking, how could we have teamed up with this madman? But, you know, they're probably used to teaming up with madmen, you know, think about Adolf Hitler. Mm-hmm. And oh, then yeah. And next, then in next the issue. Yep. What, did, what does it say? Mile High City. Yeah, mayhem <laughs> in the Mile High City. Wow. Okay, so this issue was pretty fun, right, Billy? Mm-hmm. Uh, there there oh, yeah. were some, you know, ish, uh, some issues with the issue but you know not nothing to detract from my enjoyment at all no, i mean firebrand's origin nope. being rushed that's based not origin but firebrand's entry into the world of masked heroes being rushed that's the only criticism i can levy at this what about you yeah that's i mean it was again it roy crammed a lot into the issue but it worked and it's really good and i really like firebrand and how he immediately showed that she can hold her own and she's right there on the same level with all the male characters too. She's really, you know, really a great character. I really like her a lot. I mean, Liberty Bell is probably my favorite female character. I like her a lot too. Yeah, but, uh, she's very close to Liberty Bell for me. I think Phantom Lady, Firebrand, Liberty Bell, all of them, Roy wrote mm-hmm. them so well and so distinctly. They weren't just copies of one type of woman, you know what I mean? The, the strong... No, no. Um, go-getter, the female superhero type. They weren't like that at all. They were each distinctive personalities, the way Roy wrote them. I loved all three of them, even though you mm-hmm. don't see as much of Phantom Lady as you see of Firebrand and Liberty Bell in the All-Star Squadron. But yeah, Firebrand's very high up there for me. Not just because she's beautiful and because I love redheads, but, you know, uh, hey, I love blondes, blondes too. <laughs> but I love brunettes as well, you know, so <laughs> it doesn't matter. That's yeah. not why I like them. It's because they're so well-written and because they're have a distinctive power set as well as great personalities along with that. So great yeah. issue, some fun between, you know, Nazi saboteurs, Nazi soldiers proper, some, <laughs> some you know, Mexican supervillain action. <laughs> I'm just glad, Billy, that the first Mexican supervillain they encountered was not a luchador. <laughs> Yeah, really. Oh, this because guy was, the, this guy was pretty good. I mean, yeah. Do you think about it? We they had two 
good villains back to back. I like that Dragon King a lot. Oh, he was man. really cool. His costume was cool. He's all ripped and he's got a pistol. And dragon he kind of reminds King. me of Doctor Doom a little bit. But yeah, he his looks like had like a dragon. He looks like Doctor Doom crossed with Fu Manchu crossed with a, a green Ku Klux Klan member, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what the Dragon King uh-huh. looks like. This guy, the Feathered Serpent, is more of your traditional kind of uh, Inca-like priest getup, but he's yeah. ripped. He's got massive yeah. muscles, and um, you know he's got this, like I mentioned, cool sacrificial dagger there. <laughs> so you know he means business. Yeah, he must have borrowed that from the. Uh, oh, what's <clears> that <throat> on Batman? That secret, you know, cult of like people. Is it Rachel Ghoul's people? What yeah. are they called? They. They usually have a knife like that, I feel like. Yeah, maybe, yeah. The League of Assassins. Uh, yeah. yeah, something like that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, They. I've seen this knife in many iterations before. It always spells sure. doom, <laughs> you know, so oh, yeah. damn cool. And then, Billy, you also have um, you know, the two covers that we still have to get to. I. Oh, boy. Uh, it's hard to pick between these two. I would, I would have to say I prefer the Statue of Liberty cover of issue five because... The, the cover of... Uh, they're a little bit busy, the, these covers, because like most mm-hmm. of the All-Star Squadron covers, they have to feature lots of characters. So that right. that's sometimes took away from it. But we, we've shown that it it could be done right if you do it, you know, like the, the cover of the first two issues of All-Star Squadron, you know, where they did include large cast members in the cover, but it still looked pretty awesome. They dropped the ball a little with issue three, you know, the Solomon Grundy cover. Yeah. Now, issue four and five... This is where it gets a little bit problematic because you kind of it leaves you thinking: Is every cover gonna feature a ton of heroes? You know what I mean? It's just too busy looking. Yeah. Or, or what right. would you say? I, I totally agree, and I like five a little bit better. <clears throat> Four is cool too. Don't get me wrong; I don't like the white background there. It just I don't know. It's like it's well, it's like a blue background, and then there's almost like a white like spotlight. Yeah, spotlight the effect. The heroes, yeah, fighting each other. And again, not bad. I like it, but I really like number five. And the more I look at it, it's especially because Robot Man is punching a Nazi right off the top of the Statue of Liberty. <laughs> and he looks, him and another one look like they are plummeting to their death. And that looks hilarious. The face on the one, too, is hilarious. He's like, ah, kind of screaming. Exactly. And of course, Firebrand, you know, featured prominently that guy that's screaming, falling, his gun is being melted in midair by Firebrand swinging in on uh, a, a rope that something like her brother used to use, you know, as Firebrand. He used to, you know, yeah. have a grappling rope like that. So, you know, this mm-hmm. this sort of has that visual connection with the, the original Firebrand as the costume already has. But, you know, yeah, I do prefer this cover more. You've got like this uh, colorful effect in the background reminiscent of a sunset, right, Billy? And then you've got a great mm-hmm. depiction of the Statue of Liberty's face, all half yeah. in shadow, you know, presumably from the sunset. And then you've got all of these JSA members in action, like you already mentioned, and Johnny Quick running down the arm (laughs) of Lady Liberty. (laughs) Uh, It's a great cover and less characters than featured on issue four's cover. And issue four's cover, Billy, if you really want to nitpick, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, you've got Dr. Fate blasting Johnny Quick with magical energy, which he can't do because he doesn't have his mask of Naboo. He's just got super strength and vulnerability on the power of flight. And you've got um, the Spectre taking on the Atom, 
I mean, what the hell? Is, <laughs> that, yeah, that makes crazy. Wouldn't, like couldn't he have, a guy. Yeah. Okay, uh, but not a lot of powerful members in the the the, the good All Star Squadron, All-Star squadron yeah. at this point in time. But you, you know, you've got <laughs> Superman drop kicking Robot Man. That's a pretty good one. But and then yeah. Wonder Woman punching Liberty Bell. <laughs> so interesting cover. The Justice Society of America versus the All Star Squadron. Yeah, but you know, I prefer like you issue number five's cover for all the reasons mentioned. So Billy, now um, I do have a little bit of uh, historical information prepared for our Earth Prime archive segment. I'm just gonna Mm -hmm. not rush through it, but you know, we're running short on time here, but um, it'll be another five to 10 minutes. But this is very pertinent because uh, in in the last episode, I promised our listeners I'd be covering real life supervillains. And as we've Mm -hmm. seen, Today, we've been introduced to a couple of new villains, the Dragon King. We're introduced mm-hmm. to General Schaukel and the Feathered Serpent. <clears throat> now, I've prepared a bit on Earth Prime, <laughs> supervillains of this time. I'm not going to focus on Hitler and Mussolini too much. We'll leave that for other episodes. But who I'm specifically going to focus on here um, is the big bad of them all when it comes to the, the Asian Pacific theater of the war. And that is Prime Mm -hmm. Minister Hideki Tojo, the Mm -hmm. Prime Minister of Japan, who had at this point in time, even though Japan had an emperor, he had assumed, this is Tojo now, he had assumed almost dictatorial level powers over the entire country because Japan was being run by the military, similar to something like what you'd think about Myanmar or uh, today or maybe North Korea the military was running the country the emperor was a figurehead but and he did have the ultimate say but he there was a threat of assassination uh, that the emperor was under because leaders who proved to be weak they were not worthy of honor they were not worthy of the Yamato code which the Japanese lived by honor above all uh, and and this the spirit that they 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 thought they had that made them greater than their neighbors, if the emperor showed a sign of weakness, it would have endangered his life. You know, so the emperor did have the ultimate say over military matters, but he would never sanction a decision where it would, uh, let's say, for instance, advocate retreat or you know um, giving up of territory. You know what I mean, Billy? That was too dangerous for the emperor Hirohito at this point in time was the emperor. So the point is Tojo, Hideki Tojo, he was in control of Japan's war effort at this point in time and he would remain in control until 1944 when some elements of his cabinet deposed him because they weren't happy with the Americans advance. They, you know, in the South Pacific and, um, you know, the loss of territory that they were suffering at the hands of the Americans. Uh, in 1944 so they thought that a change of leadership was in order so this group of generals deposed Tojo not really deposed it's sort of like they just forced him to retire and then he was still serving in the government if you know what I mean but um, they questioned his decision-making ability but basically for almost a decade a little bit less than a decade Tojo was the leader of Japan and he was also then the main person to blame for all the Japanese atrocities. Now, Billy, if you think about it, up until, well, there there have been many atrocities uh, committed throughout, you know, history, of course. But I'm talking here about modern day warfare since the time of Napoleon. 
you know, in this point in time, uh, you mm -hmm. know, sanctioned that you treat prisoners of war well. Because after all, if you treat our prisoners of war well, we will treat your prisoners of war well. And there, after the war is done, there will be an exchange. People would be able to go home. So war was very much about territory only. You capture territory and you show mercy to the losers if they surrender. You know what I mean, Billy? So surrender yeah. was considered a feasible tactic uh, in modern European warfare. However, in Japan, you know, the samurai code that they had, surrender was seen as a horrific act. So not only would the Japanese never surrender, uh, eventually they would be forced to surrender, but, but they would never, at this point in time of the war, surrender. Mm -hmm. They saw people that they conquered and who surrendered to them as deserving of no mercy. In fact, death would be preferable to give to these people. It would solve many problems. It would, of course, solve their moral uh, problem which is to put to death anybody who's not worthy of life which is these people who are just like sacrificed all honor and then yeah. another problem it would solve is the problem of the logistics they wouldn't have to feed these POWs they wouldn't have to provide medical attention they wouldn't have to provide you know um, habitation for these folk you know what I mean mm -hmm. and, yeah. and they wouldn't have to expend that extra time and effort and money on that so they treated prisoners of war horribly inhumanly horribly so so Billy that makes the war crimes trials in 1946 after the war was won against Japan and, and Germany there were two trials there were the Nuremberg trials who dealt with the German high command in Europe mm -hmm. and then of course there was the Japanese um, war crime trials in Tokyo in 1946 yeah. and most of these people especially Hideki Tojo they were sentenced to death him and at least 14 other generals and high-ranking Japanese officials who were responsible directly for all the atrocities committed in this war, they were put to death by hanging, but some were given life imprisonment and some were eventually released and became respected members of Japanese society, which is horrible in itself. Now, Billy, this is what I'm going to be addressing. I'm My, my, my reasoning behind this is these are real-life supervillains because of what they've done. Now, Hideki oh, yeah. Tojo, basically, the reason I mentioned him first is you kind of have to hold him responsible for everything, all the atrocities that happened in the war, because he had full knowledge of everything that was going on. Now, these are the things that were going on at this point in time. Now, I'm going to focus on a real-life supervillain who was given this power by Tojo to do all of these things. And this is just one example. There were hundreds of other Japanese commanders who did things almost on the scale of this guy. But this guy is called Field Marshal Shunroko Hata. Now, this Field Marshal Hata, right, Billy, he was responsible for many atrocities. But two of the biggest ones, you might know some of them, were the Zhejiang Jiangxi campaign, which happened after the Doolittle raid on, on Japan. As you remember... Okay. Uh, America's first act of retaliation against Japan was to organize a bombing raid on Japan itself. And uh, James Doolittle, this this pilot, he uh, you know led the raid with these bombers that flew over to Japan. They did bomb some munitions factories and some some key targets, but nothing to make a big difference. But they basically it was a symbolic blow to Japan. They just wanted to show that Japan is not 
as invulnerable as they think. So that's why the mm. Doolittle raid was orchestrated. But the problem with the Doolittle raid was after the bombers had dropped their load, they didn't have enough fuel to to fly back to the aircraft carriers in the Pacific. They kind of had to land somewhere in China, which was at that point in time occupied by Japan. So engaging with the Chinese underground and Chinese rebels, America had uh, you know, organized the construction of airstrips, right, Billy? for these Doolittle right. bombers to land on because they didn't want to sacrifice these guys. These guys were heroes and they were trained bombing pilots. They were they were very important, you know, and there were more than like 40 of them. So mm -hmm. unfortunately, the Japanese had discovered these airstrips that the Chinese was helping the Americans build. They had destroyed the airstrips, which meant that most of the planes had to be abandoned mid-air and the pilots had to parachute out in order to avoid capture by the Japanese. Still, most of them were captured by the Japanese. Not most, but you know, some died too on the raid. Some crash landed, some couldn't parachute out. But when they were captured by the Japanese, they were immediately interrogated and executed in the most horrific fashion. You know what I mean, mm -hmm. Billy? After hours of torture, they would be beheaded with katanas or whatever. So then, Billy, what happened to the ones who were not captured? They were given sanctuary by some Chinese from Chinese villages, specifically in the provinces of Zhejiang and Jiangxi. And then they were allowed through the underground to escape. And some of them did, in fact, return home to the States. Many of them never made it. But then this guy, Field Marshal Shunro Kohata, he organized a mass slaughter of all the villagers in these two Chinese provinces of Zhejiang and Jiangxi in wow. retaliation for helping the Americans to escape. Mm. Now, now the scale of this slaughter is so great, Billy, but three, at least 250 to 300,000 Chinese civilians lost their lives because wow. of this mass slaughter organized by this field marshal, Shunro Kohata. And then, Billy, the, this, was, this all happened in 1942, just after the Doolittle Raid. Now, mm -hmm. arguably, his most nefarious, supervillain-like achievement was, I shouldn't call this achievement, I should call this, you know, uh, genocide, really, was in 1943. And this was called his three alls policy, and completely sanctioned by Tojo and the Japanese military and the government at this point in time. Now, Billy, what was the three alls policy? This Basically, it was a scorched earth kind of policy. The three alls stand for kill all, burn all, loot all. So wow. what they basically did is everything in China, they killed, destroyed, and and took what they needed from it. You know, So there was no more POWs. There were no prisoners of war being taken. There was just, you meet a Chinese person, you kill them. You know what I mean? Unless they're an informant, unless they're someone in the pay of the Japanese government somehow, you kill them. You know what I mean, Billy? So this this was such an atrocity that this guy at the war crimes tribunal, um, the Japanese war crimes hearing in 1946, he was given a life sentence. Many thinks he should have been given a death sentence. Now, Billy, here's the real tragedy. After five years, he was paroled this Shunro Kohata, and then he became a respected member of Japanese society because after all, the American occupation of Japan ended in 1950, right? Five years after yeah. the war 
or a little bit before that. And then Japan basically had their own government again. Many people in Japan saw this guy as a hero. You know, he had survived the war. He had been one of the commanders of the war. He was a general. He was, and then he became a respected member of society. It is unacceptable. You know what I mean, Billy? Yeah, that's crazy. So he had, basically, he was almost a one man. You know, if you think of Hitler organizing the entire extermination of the Jewish people, this guy was almost as bad as that because not only did he kill almost a million or or his his orders had led to the death of more than a million chinese not just through through direct killing but also through systematic starvation and through you know um other atrocities like rape centers you know basically they they had this comfort wife system where they allowed the japanese commanders to blow off steam by you know basically molesting untold number of asian women right billy and this was wow. sanctioned. This was sanctioned by the Japanese government. And this is not, there's actual proof of all of these things in the journals kept by Japanese commanders in the field at the time of these rape centers that were set up to allow their soldiers to blow off steam and also to, to denigrate the populace. You know what I mean, Billy? So horrible atrocities. These guys cannot be forgiven. Freak. Now, Billy, now this is the, the, the thing that I have the, the most you know, uh, that, that pisses me off the most is the fact that nowadays, you know, J most of these people who received the death sentence, these leaders of the Japanese military at the time, they are honored in a shrine, you know, in uh, Japan. <clears throat> and periodically, the Japanese prime ministers would visit this prime. It's called the Yasukuni Shrine in Tokyo. The Japanese prime ministers will visit this this shrine even in modern day and they will pay respects to these military heroes. And 11 wow. of those guys on that shrine are these guys who committed these insane atrocities. And Billy, we're not talking about these are just I just mentioned two atrocities, you know, right now. There yeah. are still more. There is, of course, the Bhutan Death March, which directly affected the Americans. There, there is, in 1937, the rape of Nanking, which was basically the systematic slaughter and rape of the entire population of the city of Nanking in China. And the Japanese mm -hmm. government still now does not take full responsibility for what happened. You know what I mean? Now, Belly, before mm -hmm. I wrap up this part... If you think about nefarious organizations in, you know, the superhero comic book universe, like, for instance, uh, in DC, you had like, you know, Cobra or, you know, I'm not talking about Cobra from G.I. Joe. <laughs> I'm talking about the Cobra with a K. Right, right. Or, or, yeah. Yeah. or you think about, you know, um, Marvel, they've got people like Hydra or, you know, uh, AIM, you know, AIM. <clears throat> you think about these nefarious supervillain organizations. Japan had something like that and it was tied in with another so think about hydra and aim tied closely together i'm trying to think of an equivalent in in dc but you know the only thing that we've mentioned is the league of assassins with rajal ghul right and then yeah i can't think of maybe intergang but intergang is more like mob bosses right you know criminal empire yeah, yeah. this is on the level of maybe hydra and aim but in a much more atrocious manner because it's set in on earth prime in real life the Japanese had a secret service called the Kempei Tai, and they were active in all theaters of the Asian Pacific War. Now, not only was their job to root out 
uh, soldiers and root out spies and to kill people in the populations they occupied that they deemed as, um, you know, untrustworthy. They also had a secret mandate, Billy, to capture a certain you know, number of people and send them towards a facility in Manchu Kuo in China, in the northeast of China. And this facility was called Unit 731. Now, I advise all of our listeners, Billy, if you want to plumb the true nature of human evil, look up Unit 731 and you will see what I'm talking about. This is AIM and HYDRA taken to a sadistic new level. You know, this is like the Nazis time 10. Now, the Nazis already had horrible atrocities with their death camps and then with, with people like Joseph Mengele experimenting on humans. The Japanese make them look like novices, Billy, when you talk about Unit 731. So I'm just going to leave it there. Listeners, do your own research on Unit 731. It's horrifying, but fascinating because it, it shows you how truly evil humans can be. Now, the Japanese need to be held accountable for this, Billy, because not only do they disavow the, the full extent of the atrocities committed by Unit 731. Up until this modern day, they also will not release any information from that time. Uh, you know, um, information gathered after the fact, <clears throat> which yeah. was gathered mostly by Americans. But the Americans, strangely enough, did not microfilm the information from Unit, 73, uh, Unit 731 uh, because the Americans then... Uh, in, in a horrible move by one particular American who's also a supervillain type of character, Billy, General Douglas MacArthur, who's actually considered a hero. But his conduct during World War II and after the fact in World War II makes him more of a supervillain-like character. Now, I'm, I know there's many Americans listening to this. I don't want to disparage a national hero, but this guy should not be a national hero. Billy, he made a deal with the Japanese with the researchers and the, 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 the surgeons of Unit 731, which was technically a medical facility, they experimented in biological warfare, right, Billy? Now, he made a deal with them. Rather than prosecute them after World War II for causing millions of deaths, you know, with biological weapons on in China, rather than prosecute them, he made a deal with them that they would hand over all their information gathered on their human guinea pigs that they had studied to give it to the U.S. government, almost similar to Operation Paperclip, you know, where the U.S. uh, ferried out the German scientists like Werner von Braun to to help them with rocket development. Similar to that, Operation Paperclip, uh, Douglas MacArthur sanctioned these scientists of the Japanese who worked for Unit 731 to come over to America, or at least to give their information to America so that America could use that in future biological warfare. So, um, you know, really, yeah. So um, the, la- so the uh, last, yeah. yeah, it's crazy. So the last two supervillains I want to mention is uh, the, the leader who was a general of this Unit 737 Medical Research Facility in Manchukuo. His name was General Shiro Ishii. And then General Douglas MacArthur, regrettably, but he was a villain in this for not allowing the Japanese to be prosecuted for the atrocities they commit just 
by this one facility, Unit 731 alone. Now, listeners, this is not a horror podcast, so I'm going to ask you all to do some research on Unit 731 on your own. And if you're of a sensitive disposition, you, you'll see where you can't go further. But it, it's, it's your worst nightmares times a thousand at least. Billy, that's how bad this got. So talk about supervillains. Yeah, comic books has the monopoly on supervillains. But actually, real life, Earth Prime in our case, has mm-hmm. villains that make supervillains and Thanos look like cheerleaders because mm-hmm. of the severity right. of their crime. So that's that's how we're going to leave this episode, listeners, with this bleak, <laughs> but um, homework. We're going to leave it with homework. And nothing's bleaker than homework, right, Billy? Do your own homework, listeners. Yep. Look up Unit 731 and look up the fact that the Japanese government, even today, changes the history books and they, they, they basically cloud and blanket their atrocities as as favors that they did to the, the countries of Asia to provide them with, with railways and industry. That's how it's, it's presented in the history books nowadays. They will not admit, but many countries don't admit to the atrocities they did, right, Billy? I mean, I'm from South Africa. Oh, yeah. Our history books never admitted to the atrocities the, the Dutch settlers you know, did on the Zulu or the Khoza population. We, we never admitted to that. The British don't completely fully admit to their atrocities that they did you know, in the Boer Wars to the South Africans. But, you know, they, they do admit to it more than the Japanese do admit to the extreme level of atrocities they committed in the East. And they should be held accountable for that. That's just my personal, you know, mission. <laughs> and I don't mean to make that part <laughs> of the podcast. Point is, real life supervillains exist, folks. We know that. But, you know, look at what history teaches us about how far it can go. And we should prevent mm. that from happening again. Yeah, I'll definitely have to check that out because I hadn't heard of that 731. Unit 731, Billy. It's a horror show, man. <clears throat> Luckily, you and I, we love horror. We can handle horror, you know, magazines and monsters, <laughs> long box of darkness. But I'm not saying all of our listeners are like that, but ho- war is horror. And therefore, you have to be prepared to face these things, not just in a superhero field, but in, you know, a wider context as Real well, life. which is what we promised the listeners. So listeners, sorry for that decide, but um, very interesting bit of history, very upsetting bit of history. But, you know, Billy, I enjoy the super aspects of this comic more about, than talking about this historical piece of infamy, <laughs> you know, um, and it's been a blast talking All-Star Squadron again with you, talking some ass. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, for sure. So, all right. Well, do you want to take a quick break here and then we'll come back and wrap things up? Ah, after a long day of criminal activity, there's nothing I like better than to sit down and listen to the old radio. Wait a minute. That's not a radio. It's Plastic Man. Plastic Man. That's right, it's the Plastic Cast, a brand new podcast dedicated to Plastic Man. I'm your host, Max Romero. Together we'll be talking about Plastic Man in the Golden Age, the Silver Age, the Bronze Age, and every other age you can think of, right up to his upcoming reappearance in DC Rebirth. We'll also be talking about any Plastic Man news that might be coming up, and his appearances in every media from comics to cartoons. Makes me woozy just to think about it. I hope you'll join me to talk about the longest arm of the law here on the Plastic Cast here on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Plastic Man! Plastic Man! 
Hey, everybody. Welcome back. So, yeah, Herman and I just wanted to jump on here quick on our way out the door and just mention to you guys that we have gotten so much feedback from you guys, and we are very thankful for it, um, that we can't even try to cover it. We'd be playing catch-up every episode. So what we're going to do is we're going to have a recording come out soon where it's just a feedback episode where we focus on all you guys' feedback, the emails, you know, the Twitter reactions, uh, one of the awesome listeners gave us a, a five-star review on iTunes, so we're going to go over that as well. So look for that in the very near future. We're going to try to get that out ASAP and then uh, you know, look forward to our next episode then with uh, issues six and seven, which are going to be a blast because six covers the, you know, the second part and the rest of the uh, Yucatan adventure there and then uh, something new starting in uh, seven with some uh, new characters there too, I believe. That's right. Looking forward to that, Billy, and we'll try to get that episode out by the end of the month or early March. And again, mm -hmm. like you said, that'll be a twofer, so hopefully the listeners will get their, their time's worth out of that episode. But you and I were having a blast talking All-Star Squadron. I can't see us. I don't even want to imagine us stopping <laughs> this this podcast, but <laughs> eventually it will come to an end. But we're going to try to to flog a dead horse as far as we can after that with some more All-Star Squadron content. Maybe Young All-Stars, maybe Infinity Incorporated. We don't know. But we're loving it so much that, you know, I don't want it to end. And, uh, you mm -hmm. know, thanks again, Billy, for being here this week and talking some All-Star Squadron. So for that, right, Billy, it's the end uh, of a world on fire. We're dampening the flame a bit, but we'll relight it as soon, with the help of Firebrand, obviously, as soon as we Ooh. get back <laughs> to our next recording. So... Um, take care listeners until then we'll catch you on the down low bye bye see ya